Avi on Money, 12 to 1 p.m., only on 101.9 High FM. Welcome to 101.9 High FM. It's seven minutes past 12. Thank you for joining us on the show. As promised last week, we have a really interesting company with us in the studio today. And what intrigues me about it is that we are really going through a whole new change, a new milieu, a new set of rules, so to speak, in business in South Africa. For big business, for good business, for ethical business, nothing has changed. But yet the headwinds seem to have gone away. And sailing is just a lot easier now when you don't have to constantly fight the systems that are in place. And that's just allowing South African companies to expand, to broaden their horizons, to go overseas. And as we've said many, many times, to take that cash that's sitting on their balance sheet and put it to work. One thing we know is when that cash goes to work, it gets converted basically into jobs. And that's something that we're looking to do here. And uh, I don't like to quote, quote Julius Malema on the economic uh, front, but one thing he did say that did make sense is we want proper jobs. We want decent jobs. And if we can employ one person at 25,000 rand, and the effect of that is tremendous rather than employing maybe more people at a far lower salary because the upliftment scale is great and the Gini coefficient closes by us doing that. And there is a company that's doing that, and that's a company called Intellect that is now moving overseas from South Africa. It's looking at acquiring or it's in the process of acquiring a company in, in Holland and the Netherlands. And in studio with me is Tim, Tim Kroon, who's his chief operating officer of Intellect. Welcome to Chai FM. Thanks, Avi. Thanks for having me. Great. Thank you for being with us. Tim, let's start right at the very beginning. Let's just position who's the company, where are you guys from, what do you guys do? Yeah, well, that's a, thanks. That's a big question. I can talk for hours about that one. Okay, so let's, so, just, let's set the ground rules. You've got 50 <laughs> minutes. <laughs> okay, so there's a couple of days. I think at the surface, we're, we're an end-to-end technology services company. So what, what that means is we, we build, we design and we build software for companies in South Africa and abroad. And those systems can be, uh, systems that run their business. It can be their customer channels. There's a whole myriad of, of types of systems that we build, um, as an engineering and technology company. I think our, our, our kind of DNA or our, or our mission that kind of underpins that is a little different. Um, we were chatting a little bit earlier in the green room, but you know, one of the big frustrations with being in the world of software and technology, um, and reaching decades and decades back, um, has been this thing that it's, it's, it, these endeavors are complex. They're big, they're expensive, and they are often delivered late and not to the expectations. And, and there's a bit of a, a reputation for that, um, globally around the world. And it's existed since the sixties. We were talking about the software crisis. So what we want to do, I mean, we're, we're, we're chatting earlier as well. Uh, we're a leadership team of engineers. Uh, we've all been in the trade. Uh, we know the craft. Um, and, and we've got a mission. We want to prove that, that we can do this, that we can hold our customers' hands through these big complex endeavors and it doesn't have to be a super complex thing. We can take a simple and pragmatic approach and we can deliver something that works and solves that problem smartly without breaking the bank. Well, you said that in two minutes, so I don't know if you need 50. Um, Tim, if you don't mind, we need to just run to a quick advertising break. When sure. you come back, let's go back. How did the company start? Where, where did it start? You know, the, the humble beginnings. And then let's start talking about going overseas. We'll be back in a moment. 
Avi on Money, 12 to 1 p.m., only on 101.9 High FM. Welcome back to 101.9 High FM. It's 11 minutes past 12. Thank you so much for joining us, and thank you for staying with us if you've been with us. Just to let you know, in studio with me is Tim, Tim Kruen, who is the Chief Operating Officer of a company called Intellect. Intellect is a software company, as we just heard, a development company. Um, Tim, you said you started in a small room, and it was almost a bridging organism between academia, guys coming out of varsity, and those with the, with the knowledge and those with the need being the clients. How was that bridged? Yeah, so we, we've gone through a, a couple of transformations in our, in our short lifespan as a company. Um, you mentioned we start off in 2001, room not much bigger than the studio. Um, and our founder, Charles, at the time, it, it, he was a, he was a lecturer at Vitz, um, at Vitz University. He was teaching in engineering. Um, very smart, um, very capable person. And he was connecting graduates out of his class with opportunities in industry. So we, we basically started as a recruitment company for software talent at the graduate level. Um, but the ambition was never that limited. It was definitely more than that. Charles had a, had a vision that stretched quite a bit beyond that. And the idea was to, to find, find a path into, into a software company, whatever that path might be. And when he eventually connected with, with our, our then CTO, um, and Shashi, our, our now CEO, um, we started taking steps into two different plays. And one was software products. We, we started building a, um, a system that managed sporting events and, and licensing and generating revenue through that. Um, we also started taking steps and working with corporate South Africa on traditional line of business systems and, and, um, digital systems, um, on like contract basis, so taking on project work in the software space. And we found that that area really had legs. Um, so that was the kind of next step in the phase was um, really pouring gasoline on that fire and, and focusing on the software services components of what we're doing and growing that out. And we managed to achieve quite tremendous scale probably from about 2005 um, all the way onwards in the software services space. And that's really kind of shaped our focus as a company that builds teams as a product, software teams, and that includes you know, designers, delivery managers, software implementers, testing the, the whole thing, um, and then using that product to deliver on very specific requirements from our customers. Um, so that, that was kind of the journey. And, I mean, it, it took us from – from a, a five or six man company to what we are today, which is, you know, just over the 500 mark, um, and, uh, and, and still growing. And that's what kind of pushed us into this next level of the journey, which is to sustain that growth strategy. We need to, um, look at international opportunities as well. And Tim, just before we go on international, there's a few questions coming through. If I can just summarize them is that, there's a lot of software um, development that happens in South Africa that we interface with on an ongoing basis as clients, whether it's the banks, whether it's government, with gov- different government departments. Um, but not the banks so much, but government departments tend to just notoriously be behind, slow, inefficient. And when then when then when the system does work, it sort of doesn't connect up. Hmm. You know, you can, so now you can go on and order your new passport, but you can't find an appointment at the bank. Sort of thing. What people are really wanting to know, um, and I know maybe I'm putting you on the spot here, is that a development problem or is that a systemic problem from the, in- the, the inefficiencies that it brings along with it? Yeah, th- thanks for putting me on the spot. No problem. That's a good question, one that w- is on all of our minds. And I think the answer is it's a combination of both. 
uh, government is an old organization. Um, it's the oldest organization. And the older and the larger an organization gets, the more complicated it gets and the more federated it gets. And obviously tying those pieces together is both a political and a technology exercise. Um, and it's something that we deal with in a, to a smaller scale in corporate South Africa. Um, but definitely at the government level, it's a challenge and it's expensive and it needs to be done properly. Um, so there's those elements. It's how do you integrate the various departments appropriately? And, and again, you need political buy-in, you need budget, and you need capability to do that. But there's also the the uh, design aspects of the product you're building, and that's coming more into focus in our world at, in the last 10 years than it ever has in a new field called user experience. Um, and that's something that, that us as a company and us as an industry are focusing on trying to formalize our approach to this. It's a relatively new science um, when it comes to product design. I mean, we were chatting earlier about was, some products I as want well to say, is that exactly, is that my experience as a user, whether it's in my workplace, whether it's at home, et cetera, et cetera? Absolutely. It's, it's how you interact with a product or a system and how that matters um, to both the ends of achieving the tasks that you want to achieve on that product or system and how you feel about it. Those are both important things. So let me give you a practical example. Just before I came here, um, interesting, I, I just went on to the cycle event, the, the cycling event website, just to see what races are coming up. And I saw one and I, I, I saw the distance, but I just wanted to know a little bit. Of, so I went and Googled it. And when I clicked on the Google, it took you back to the race events yeah. website. Yeah. Even though it was, and I just thought, well, that's, Ingenious because really what it's doing, it's putting everybody back to a central place so there isn't misinformation. There's, you know, oh, I didn't book on this website and not find it. And I thought that was actually quite clever. Yeah. No, 100%. And I think there's a lot of small wins that we can have in government. We saw, um, or controversial as it might be, some of the successes we've had with e-filing as a system and the, and what that's uh, done for the country. And I think there's a lot of small applications. If we're a little more pragmatic and conservative in our approach, we can make a big dent in government services relatively easily and cheaply. Does government partner with private sector? It does, yeah, absolutely it does. Okay. Yeah. Let's get to the, the burning issue. And the burning issue is a, a company called Fixit. That's F-I-X-X-I capital T. That's a company in the Netherlands. Why the Netherlands? You've got the whole of America. You've got the whole of the UK. You can go across the border. Why Holland? Their time will come. Um, yeah, so good question. I think it was – look, we've been looking at, at, at Europe and Holland specifically the last couple of years um, opportunistically. The, we've had one or two relationships there that, have, that we've been chatting about this option. Um, but this particular one happened um, – so what happened was, just to paint the picture, the last two or three years, we've obviously had a bit of a brain drain. Um, th- there's been a bit of a spike in immigration of our, specifically our software talent, but I think any highly qualified talent in South Africa. And we noticed, in particular, um, some of our staff were going to this company called Fixit in the oh, Netherlands, wow. um, a, a disproportionate amount. And as part of, part of their model was recruiting talent out of, the, out of South Africa. Um, and we were looking to make an acquisition of some sort or a partnership of some sort internationally. So we thought this would be a clever place to start. Let's talk to this company who are already quite established in the Netherlands. Their, their model and um, their business is quite familiar to us. Um, and, and yeah, and, and some of our talent is already there. So we um, picked up the phone, arranged a meeting with them, had a chat, and serendipitously, um, they were, the owner was looking to get out of the business. So that's where, the, where it started, and here we are. While we South African staff driving him mad. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. Guys, let's take a quick break. We need to run to, to the adverts. But when we come back, one thing that I just want to ask, because I've had this experience with clients of mine who've gone to Holland specifically and just found the culture so different. They find it very difficult to, to, to manage and to bring up their family there. Let's just talk about that when we come back, but I'll be back in a moment. Avi on money. 12 to 1 p.m. Only on 101.9. Welcome back to 101.9. Hi FM. It's 21 minutes past 12. And in studio with me is the chief operating officer of a company called Intellect. And his name is Tim Kroon. And we are discussing Intellect, which is a South African based software company that is now acquiring a company called Fixit in Holland. Um, Tim, what we were discussing during the break and just before we went to the break was you're now going there. What is your plan of running that company? Are you going to reverse your staff into it? Are you going to let it run as a subsidiary? Um, it's got its own culture. How are you guys planning on managing that? Yeah, these are all good questions, and they're, and they're tough ones. I think our general plan at the moment is to let things tick over for the next while and just observe the business and learn what we can about it and the culture and how it operates. Um, we're going over next month to go meet the staff and the customers to get a handle of what they're doing um, and, and what the ambitions are there, um, just to get a, a firmer understanding. Our, our medium-term intention is to brand this as Intellect Europe um, and to operate it as, a, as an arm of Intellect out of Europe. But again, you're right, there's very delicate, tricky issues we've got to manage there. Like, do you, you know, how much do you delineate that line between European and South African culture? I mean, this is a company that 80% of its staff base are South African, um, but they have a deep respect for the Dutch culture, and we want, absolutely want to maintain that. So all these questions we're looking very much forward to answering when, when we figure it out <laughs> over the next year. And I think that's really what it's about. It's about figuring out, I mean, just to share an example, many, many years ago during the floods in Mozambique, um, uh, I was involved in a company, and we built a potable water plant and it was sponsored by a, a United Kingdom AIDS um, organization and was done in conjunction with the with the Red Cross Mozambique and everything was just hunky-dory and we came to deliver this and I don't know the exact day but let's say we got there on a Monday and the handover was on a Thursday. We just got there early just to check if everything was fine and I'm standing there with the chief engineer and we just beaming because we have delivered a state-of-the-art product. Hmm. And he says to me, no, no, we're not happy. So I, I thought I misunderstood the guy. I didn't hear him. I said, look, Mr. Later, what do you mean you're not happy? He says, you haven't finished the plant. I said, the water comes from the river, gets purified, goes into this holding tank and comes out that faucet. He said, yeah, that's the point. Cattle drink from faucets. People drink from taps. Right. Yeah. And it hit me like a bag of cement. Like, how insensitive. Just because you're handing over an aid product doesn't mean you can demean the people where they have to stand with a f- – yeah. and we quickly got a whole lot of taps made and it, it was all done quickly. But what struck me was why don't you ask beforehand yeah. how would you like it to look when it's finished? Simple question. We're just too arrogant to ask. Yeah. And we learned from that and it was a great learning curve and, and it that's was a embarrassing. Good, that's a good lesson in yeah, in user research and, dis- and product design. Absolutely. And, and sometimes just asking the people there what they actually want. Yeah. So, yeah, but that's not, it's not like you're going to a country that's totally different. Okay, as far as the actual delivery of software and development, is it different to what you're doing here or is it very similar? 
It's very similar. Uh, um, again, most of the customers that side are like traditional financial services players. They're going to be banks and insurers and a couple of little niche areas. But um, the craft of engineering is pretty transferable. The actual building of the products, I think, is a, a very transferable skill. Um, the technology set skill sets that are required are, are pretty uniform. Uh, that doesn't really change over geographies that much. Um, but I guess where our challenges will lie will be in understanding the customers and the dynamics of those cultures, how to interact with them, how the relationships and the partnerships play out. That's going to be the biggest challenge, the, that side of it. The, um, the craft itself, I think I think we're good there. Yeah. So the question that's coming through is that what language does one converse with your clients in in Holland, is is English the the language or is it Dutch? It's in, it's predominantly English, um, as far as I understand. Um, of course, there is Dutch that happens, um, but uh, the, the the business language is, is primarily English. So, Ria, I think what the what the the caller was getting at is that English is actually the business language internationally. Yeah. And you know, once you're dealing with companies where English is the base, you can actually go anywhere and do anything. Correct. Yeah. Definitely, with with maybe a little bit of difficulty, but you can get by. No, it's, it's always going to be there. Yeah. Um, because the majority of your, because it's an up and running company, all the staff are there, everything's in place. It's a running, it's a going concern. Do you see more people leaving from South Africa to go from your South African division to go to the Dutch division, or is it going to stay autonomous as it is now? I think, look, one of the benefits, one of the things we're aiming to achieve with this is to give South African software engineers an opportunity to relocate but continue working for a South African business. Um, and also, you know, have, have the opportunity to jump overseas and go experience different cultures and, and lifestyles for, you know, 12 months or 24 months and then come back without having to go through the pain of immigration. So I think those two benefits are quite powerful um, and they do speak to, you know, a young generation of software engineers who want to do interesting work across the world. Um, when you start in South Africa and as you run your company now, I suppose what you've said a few times is that your edge is the efficiencies is delivering on time, helping to hand over, not dumping the client to the product, but making sure there's teams to make sure that it's smooth going forward. Yeah. Europe, I would assume, is a lot more sophisticated. They've maybe been doing it a little bit longer. They've maybe honed their skill there. Is this not a case of like the amateur coming to teach the pro how to do their job? <laughs> um, I, I, I see it very differently, of course. I may be biased. Um but my experience in this industry has shown me that the South African people behind the software industry are world class. And by world class, I'm, I'm, it's a bit of an understatement in my view. I think um, the level of software services that are conducted in this country supersede a lot of what I've seen internationally. And I think it does a lot of it does come down to our pragmatism. Again, it's it's maybe not – again, the craft can be taught and it can be learnt and it can be done quicker or slower or better or worse. But – the approach of fit for purpose products instead of blue sky and of that over promising we're talking about. I think, th I think that's what businesses really need. Um, when you're looking at initiatives that cost you hundreds of millions of rands to overhaul your business, to gear it towards moving more business to digital channels and alleviating uh, load on call centers, et cetera, that's, that's an exercise where you don't need, um, artificial inflation of scope of what you're doing. You need people who are honest and real and willing to push back and have dialogue with you and partner in building that exercise, knowing it's going to be a bit of push and pull and you might not get exactly what you want when you want it, but uh, the end result's going to be the best result for you. 
Um, and you uh, know that there will be an end result. It won't be an ever ongoing road in Pumalanga that never gets finished. Yeah, it'll be the tap, not the faucet. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, I've never had that before. Okay, well <laughs> done. At least you listened to it. Speak. <laughs> um, let's move maybe back to South Africa. You guys have built a large company. It's not, I mean, it's a medium-sized company. You've got 500 employees. You've had to deal with lots of different dynamics working in South Africa. One of them being is that you need a certain quality um, of person with a, from an academic person, uh, point of view, but also from an experience point of view. One thing that I found quite interesting is that taking guys straight out of varsity, even with the masters, is that how much have they actually really been in the trenches? And now all of a sudden you're putting them in the real world and they're looking at a cloud and they say, well, in, in, in fourth year we discussed, who cares what you discussed in yeah. fourth year? How do you bridge that gap of Excellent academia and lack of work experience, and you get it to work quickly. Yeah. So I think, firstly, like we don't really expect that people leave university with a computer science or engineering degree and know how to do the job. In fact, we assume they don't, and we have mechanisms that deal specifically with that, which I'll talk about. But what it does give people is, first of all, a grounding in the theory and fundamentals that carry them throughout their career. And, and an expectation of what hard work is like to get through that three or four year degree. Um, so it's a good starting point. It's a good baseline for us. Then what happens is they, they come out of university and we have, we have a graduate program. And this program is designed specifically to bridge that gap. Um, so we'll go to the market and we'll hire 30 or 40, uh, computer science and engineering graduates. And then they'll go through a two month process of what we call boot camp. And, Bootcamp is called bootcamp because it's not easy at all. It's, um, it really is a highly concentrated version of what you might experience in your first real world software project or compressed into two months full time. Um, and it's taught by our best technical experts and it covers all the, the most cutting edge and relevant areas of technology teaching. So all the cool tech that's being used on, on big products. These guys learn how to use it. They learn some of the theory behind it, but mostly it's practical. Um, and it's, they got to deliver a project at the end of the day over that two month period and they've got to demo it to the senior management team at Intellect as if they were the customer. Um, so it's quite fun, um, for us. Um, and there's moments of fun for them too, I think. Um, but it is a lot of, of sweat and tears. Um, but they come out of it with a massive advantage on anyone else who's coming off the starting line out of university in this career. Um, it really is a powerful program. In fact, I was saying to my colleagues, I wish when I'd started at NSEC we had this program. <laughs> you know, I, I was, I went for, through a similar thing. I mean, when I first joined the financial services industry, it was a, a week course. Um, and what it highlighted for me sitting in there, even though I had the academic background, is people with practical experience, when they were put in real life scenarios, were actually still churning out stuff that they had in the manual from 10 years ago without being able to think. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, as I progress in the career, finding again that more intense um, education and, and product knowledge doesn't yet make someone acutely aware of how to, as I say, get in the trenches and make things happen. Yeah. So that boot camp for you is is absolutely crucial. But there's something that we hear a lot about in South Africa. We've got graduates, they come out, we put them in the workplace, and they haven't got a cooking clue what to do. And I, I often thought about myself, if you had taken me straight out of varsity and you gave me a sortena or a sharp ratio and asked you to work things out, I would say to you, well, give me all the variables and I'll work it out. But just 
I, I can't work into a but had I gone through the boot camps, oh, is that where they came from? Is yeah. it, then, boom, I'm empowered now to go and I'm confident to do it. Yeah, and on, and on your own speed, it might take you, you know, a year or two to kind of absorb that experiential wisdom that you get out of doing things and figuring it out. Whereas I think a boot camp that's done well, you, you can, you can press it down into a few months. When when it comes to to employing, uh, there's certain quotas and there's ratios, and, and, and I don't want to get into the political side of things, but one thing that every company has, especially a larger company in South Africa, is a social responsibility. At the end of the day, we part of this country, uh, this, this country voluntarily, because we could have relocated, and together that comes a responsible, responsibility to make sure that everybody benefits as we grow. What's the mindset when... Your ex-go sits around the table and this sort of topic comes up and, and it's a warm, fuzzy feeling, but no one's going to just go and build a school. No one's just going to go throw 10,000 textbooks. Yeah. Um, I think we all feel pretty passionate about, about fixing things in this country or do playing our part to make things better. Um, and we do that quite explicitly. I mean, we've got, we sign a fair amount of, of our profits each year and invest that directly back into the community in terms of our foundation work. So there's, there's, there's a financial benefit and, and it's, it's not just randomly spent on charities. We invest this in kids from school, um, giving them access to academic learning material, books, transport, um, food to get to class. Um, and then we host some sessions over weekends where our staff get involved in mentoring on a one-to-one basis, kids in school. From grade, I think it's grade six upwards, um, teaching maths and science, helping them grapple with those topics so that they can get prepared for university level entrance. Um, and then obviously when they hit university, that's, that's got to continue too. Um, and we've had a few, few good success stories there. We, we had one, one kid, Brandon, who went through our foundation, um, and eventually made into university, qualified, Got his degree, did an internship with us, and then got a, was hired full time. And it's just a really great story, I think, um, for how this thing can work. Um, so yeah, that, that's where the focus is. Um, so, so your focus is on education. Yeah. Is it broad? Is it specific? Have you chosen one or two schools? Is it a particular geographic area? It, how, have you segmented that offering? Yeah. So it, it's it's pretty much Gauteng. Um There's a couple of schools that we work with, but it's um yeah it's 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 not it's not national it's right now focused at offices around China. so do you go to a particular school or do you wait for a parent or a youngster to come to you and say listen i'm going into high school haven't got a penny to my name i, I can't afford this transport to school how, how do people how do you get involved and the, the reason i'm drilling down is that what i found over the years is that companies are getting more and more specific with how they spend their money. Yeah. Not that they want to brag about it, but they want to see the return on investment, not in a monetary sense, but want to make sure they're spending their money well so people are benefit from, yeah. from it. No, 100%. And uh, yeah, I agree with that. Um, so, um, yeah, just, I guess to answer your question, it's, it's, it's primarily driven through, uh, social networks and current staff and people who've been through the program and referrals. Um, it's, it's our network of people who've been through it, um, and who's people who are in need. Um, we've got a, a, a group of people who look after the foundation and it's their responsibility to bring people in and make sure they succeed through that foundation work. You mentioned food. 
Um, and I know I'm, I'm maybe a little drilling down, but um, I was talking to a professor of music at, at Wits a couple of maybe last year, and I just I happened to be in the home and I noticed loaves of bread, and we just started talking. She takes two or three loaves of bread or peanut butter and jam sandwiches to work every single day. So my first thought is, oh well, you had them out at the robots. And no, they're for second and third and honest students. And I said, look, just just talk to me. What is going on? <clears throat> she says. She never forgets walking into a lecture room and finding students getting up from sleeping in the lecture room. And it didn't smell fresh. And it, it just, and she asked the guys, what's going on? They said, look, we've got a choice. Either we're going to use the money to get transport home and then not eat, or we're going to stay here, use the little money we have to buy food, but then we have to stay here and we're going to wash in the garden tap because, you know, or in the gymnasium or wherever it was. And it dawned on her the dedication that these kids have to study. Yeah. It just blew her mind. She says, what's two loaves of bread going to cost me? It's almost like, a, you know, it'll disappear into the budget. And that became a, a common thing. But to sit and talk to her and hear the struggles that these children go through, and yet we complain when we got, you know, cold meat on our sandwiches for two days in a row. Yeah, you know, that sort of scenario. Yeah, and well. so well done for doing that because that just alleviates a whole worry that people have that we take for granted. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on to things a little bit more, more upbeat and a little bit more pretty. <laughs> Your South African company, you're looking yeah. to grow, as you said, because you need some, some space to, to spread your re- wings and to grow. Is there more place to grow here? Yes, definitely. Still, there's still much work to be done in South Africa. Um, we're, we're still, pushing pretty hard on our regional growth at the moment um, between Cape Town and Pretoria. I think there's still a lot of opportunity for growth in what we're doing there. Um, I think there's other regions we haven't explored as well. Um, specifically from a talent perspective, there's some interesting things happening in Port Elizabeth and Durban. Um, I mean, the, the customers are the customers. They're the big financial players and others in South Africa. And, and you know, geography isn't too relevant to them. But definitely from a talent perspective, there's, there's growth opportunity. I mentioned before, across the Limpopo, north of South Africa, we mm. know that the story was two, three, maybe four years ago, it's the fastest growing economies in the world. That it, yeah, but we all realized that the base was so low that any growth was exponential. And they seem to have, in a way, grown. And uh, unfortunately, the breaks have come on in certain economies. But Nigeria, Tanzania... Um, definitely Botswana, Angola, Mozambique. There's, there's just exponential growth happening there. Do you guys see a market there? We definitely see, um, yes. So, um, short answer from a business perspective. I mean, we already, did, we're already doing some work in Africa. Um, doing some interesting work now for a company in Botswana. Um, I think more interestingly from a, from a talent perspective, there are massive pools of developed talent in those countries. Um, that some people are, are leveraging and a lot of people aren't. And, and I think they can compete with the likes of massive offshore destinations like the Philippines and India and Eastern Europe. Um, there's, there's a trick that, that's been missed in Africa as far as that's concerned. And there's no doubt because we often see that talent coming down to South Africa. Yeah. You sit down and you speak to a guy and after he's helped you or she's helped you say, by the way, interesting accent, where are you from? And say, like, wow. Why, why don't you stay home and just continue to build? Obviously, because that's not where the jobs are, yeah. but we could build it. Well, let's take a quick break. Um, time's gone pretty quickly. We'll be back with you guys in a moment. Avi on money, 12 to 1 p.m., only on 101.9. Hi, Avi. 
Welcome back to 101.9 High FM. It's 20 minutes to, to 1, nearly 19 minutes to 1. You know, Tim, I'm often anxious to actually say the time because on Sunday morning the show is replayed and in the evening sometimes it's replayed. And then you're driving around and you think, well, either I got out of bed too early or too late and you look at your <laughs> clock. But yeah, the show is, is played quite a few times again. So, uh, right now we're sitting at 19 minutes to, to 1. In your company, you have a lot of staff. It's important to retain staff. Um, I, I heard recently that certain companies are even employing um, a, a, a person in charge of happiness or a person mm, in charge chief of content officer. sort of story. <laughs> and in a way, the, when, it, when you hear it the first time, you think, okay, you, this, this is definitely a Willy Wonka story. Something mm. else is not right. But the bottom line is that I've been in certain organizations where there's such a chaos and such a culture. That, that is almost electric. Mm. And uh, when you say saying negative against the company, it's almost treason um, because people are so passionate and so committed. But also you find people don't want to leave and yet people are dying to get in. Mm. Um, you've clearly done something right because you've grown very quickly. You're looking to go overseas. How do you keep the morale solid? How do you keep the energy going? How do you retain staff? Because one thing I've learned is that staff often don't move for money. You can't buy a person with five rand or another bonus because if they're miserable in that job, the money's not worth it. If you're paying well, people are looking for something more than money. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's very true in our field as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think software engineering um, individuals like ourselves, we're looking for challenge. We're looking for growth. Uh, we're looking for a sense of community. Um, all these things are, are incredibly important to to software engineers and especially young software engineers and that's what we focused on from a culture perspective at Intellect. I think staying fast, holding fast to our promises of professional career growth is probably paramount there and what we mean by that is not climbing a ladder, it's are you becoming better at what you do? Um, are you taking steps forward every day that make you a better engineer and a better person and a better professional? And we invest probably um probably an irresponsibly large amount of time into doing this exercise with our staff base. Um, and that's a lot of face time with, with our senior management team, a lot of coaching with our middle management and our junior leadership teams on, on how to have growth conversations with staff, um, how to challenge and grow them and give them opportunities to stretch and try new responsibilities. These are all very important in a growing young company. Um, have you learned anything from your staff in these feedback sessions? Oh, we learn every day. Uh, that's shaped what we are today. Um, that transparency and that listening back is a critical feeder in what we do um, on a day-to-day basis. Um, yeah. Let me ask you, you're the chief operating officer. So basically, the operations, the day-to-day, everything is your responsibility and your chain of command is very short to the top and often doesn't go up, it goes sideways. The responsibility on you is massive. Um, it's not about whether you can or can't do your job. You're in the position because you can. But what are the pressures that you feel as Tim Cruen when you walk into the office in the morning? What are the pressures that you feel on a weekend when you're walking with your family or when you're on holiday or when when the, you just want to take that one individual walks into your office with the same ridiculous request and you've explained, and all you want to do is take them and throw them out the window. Where's the pressures on you as a CEO? Because ultimately, from what you've just explained, it's not really um, what you do. It's about how you do it. Mm. Yeah. I, I think so. a lot of what we're weighing on a week-to-week basis is um, how we're working and who we're working with. 
and a lot of those decisions land on my team. Um, and those te- that those decisions have dramatic ripple effects all the way throughout the organization from how those teams are structured, who's paying the team, the, the experience our staff are going to have working on a particular software product or project or working with the type of customer. Is that enabling their growth? Is that going to be a positive experience for them? Um, is that is that the right type of partnership for us as a company? Um, those are those are pretty much weekly decisions for us as a team, and they can be pretty stressful. You're balancing a lot of variables there. Um, but then it's just the overwhelming weight of a, having a leadership team of 20 people who are responsible for the 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 futures of 500 staff um, and the operational weight that carries on on them. And it's a hard thing to manage. It demands a lot of them. Um, but I, I couldn't have a more committed um, a committed team to that goal. And obviously there's a team that helps you support going forward. Just before we end, um question that's come through is how do you handle the responsibility of charity? Uh, if I could maybe just flesh it out, I think what they're asking is that Corpus Africa is is just bombarded on an ongoing basis with requests, whether it's in what you want to do in education or please can you sponsor water bottles or can you sponsor my son's soccer team to so something you know more important there's a child that's really not well and if you don't cut a check of 50,000 rand it's, the child's not going to see you tomorrow morning how do you guys handle that? We focus it on what we believe in um, and what we believe in is education um, so that's where the the money that we do contribute goes directly to um, and not, like I said, not just money. It's, it really is, um, hours and time and, um, investment from our, pers- personally from our staff on weekends in coaching and mentoring, um, students and schoolgoers and helping them get a better chance, a better shot at tertiary education and getting a job one day. And that's what we believe in. You know, maybe just to share with you just on a, a lighter note towards the end of the year, to the end of the last year, you know, a lot of us in, in my group turned around and said, these year-end parties, no one really wants to go to. They cost an enormous amount of money. They need to be done for various reasons, including having the expense, etc., etc. But they're meaningless. And someone came up with the idea of going to an orphanage. And um, it was very well organized, and put together orphanage around the corner here. And we got wish lists from these kids. And I sat with our staff, and we got given a, a particular house. I mean, we read through this list. And there wasn't a dry eye because the list was so humble and so mundane, simple, like a swimming costume and a towel, like um, things that I didn't know about because of my generation, but like an iPod. So I turned and I said, like, isn't iPod phased out? They said, yeah, but not if you're that end of the financial spectrum. It's still a commodity. Mm. They wanted to take lot. You could buy them for 200 rand. I remember what I bought the first one for my kids. It was in the thousands. And putting this together and then turning around and saying, you know what, guys, we're not going to get certain people in head of office another bath soap or a bubble bath or something. We're going to go about another get a kid a gift, a gift but on your behalf. And all of a sudden, this almost resentful event became the most powerful thing that could happen. And also for people in privileged positions to spend a Sunday with kids that you just realize how blessed you are and what you have. We're not trivializing the challenges and the cash flow issues and your own problems, but when you look at what you can do and how you can affect kids' lives, um, and the one example was a 17-year-old kid, and his wish, they had to have like different grades of, the one wish that was pie in the sky was a virgin or, or a planet fitness contract. 
And when it was given to him, he couldn't believe it. He looked at it and he closed it and he put it down as to say, this can't happen to a person like me. Mm. But it does happen to a person like and who knows what will happen when he's in the change room? Who knows what happens when he's in the treadmill? Who will meet? Who will interact with? What horizons will happen? And it's companies like you that focus on that that make those things happen. Right, I know I stole the last two minutes there. No, thank but you. Tim, as a, as a closing part, how do people get hold of you? How do people get in touch with you? So I think first port of call is uh, come visit us online on our website. That's www.intellect. That's E-N-T-E-L-E-C-T dot C-O dot Z-A. There you can pretty much find every detail you need to know about us, including our social media channels, contact us. Um, employment like, opportunities. Yeah, employment opportunities. Um, yeah. Fantastic. Great. That was Tim Cron, Chief Operating Officer. Thank you for coming in. Ladies, thank you for putting the interview together. Um, next week, just to give you the heads up, we're going to be doing something different yet. Once again, I've got a uh, company's been in touch with me that does things very differently, does things that um, sometimes can be seen a little bit as you know, flirting with the edge of the law, but yet they have a great impact on society and they have a great impact on individuals. And maybe a couple of years ago, Companies, you know, that we take uh, our house to hold names today were in that position. So it's about being maverick and it's about being different. So uh, I will let you know during the week who we're going to be interviewing. But once again, Tim Kroon from um, Intellect, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for Everybody, thanks for listening and we'll speak to you next week.